When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Always vote for principle, though you may vote alone. And you may cherish the sweetest reflection that your vote is never lost. John Quincy Adams. Everybody, CJ here welcoming you to a special fun-sized 4th of July Dangerous History Podcast special and happy Independence Day to all of my listeners in the United States. I wanted to put out something for Independence Day and I'm still working on my giant multi-hour episode about British propaganda in the United States during World War 1. So, I hit pause button for a little bit working on that to make this Now, just as a side note, before I go on any further, if I sound different, if I sound hoarse, if I sound congested, that is because I am getting over the COVID. Yes, the past several days I've been dealing with the dreaded COVID, and it hasn't hit me particularly hard. Mostly it's been like a cold. Mostly it's been nasal and chest congestion in some sort of fatigue and brain fog, that kind of stuff. So that has unfortunately thrown a monkey wrench into me trying to tackle the latter stages of trying anyway to finish up that podcast about British propaganda in the U.S. during World War I. And actually, I've had to take the last several days off entirely from recording anything because my voice was totally shot for a while. So hopefully it'll hold up long enough for me to do this relatively short episode this fun-sized installment of the Dangerous History Podcast. So, the centerpiece of this microdose of Dangerous History is going to be another July 4th. A July 4th exactly 201 years ago from when I'm going to be releasing this podcast. And I want you to listen to how different America's leaders used to sound versus how they sound in our own time and really how they've sounded at least since World War II. And how they sound particularly today, when people like Joe Biden say that the U.S. 
needs to stay involved with the Ukraine war and keep propping them up in order to protect the so-called liberal world order, which really means the American empire. The star, the centerpiece of this episode, is going to be John Quincy Adams, the son of John Adams, the famous signer of the Declaration of Independence, first vice president, second president of the United States. Well, John Quincy Adams was his son. And John Quincy Adams is an extremely interesting guy. In my mind, he's one of the most interesting American political leaders of his generation. Now, he himself should not be considered a founding father, but I think he's rightfully considered both literally and figuratively a founding son, because of course, he was alive, but he was a kid when the American War of Independence happened. And he was part of the second generation of political leaders in the independent United States afterward. Also, obviously, he was literally the son of John Adams, who is, of course, one of the kind of front bench or first string founding fathers. And he's a very interesting guy for a variety of reasons. I certainly don't agree with everything he said or did over his long career, but I have a lot of respect for him, and I certainly agree with at least some of what he said and did. So, a very, very brief sketch of a bio of John Quincy Adams. I would argue, and I think a lot of historians who have studied him would argue, that there's a strong case to be made that John Quincy Adams may have been the most effective and skillful Secretary of State the U.S. has ever had. Now, I say that in an ideologically neutral sense. In other words, setting aside whether I agree or disagree with some or all of what he actually did, how effective was he as a Secretary of State, meaning trying to achieve the goals he set for the United States through diplomacy, which is what Secretaries of State are supposed to be doing. I know it's hard to remember that in our time, when very few Secretaries of State actually are doing that, and very often they're just acting as adjuncts to the quote-unquote Defense Department. But John Quincy Adams was one of the most skillful diplomats that the United States has ever had. He was born in 1767, so again, just a little kid when the American Revolution broke out. And when he was a fairly young man, just a teenager, he was sort of apprenticed out by his father, John Adams, and he went to work as sort of like a secretary and assistant for various American diplomats around the world. And so he grew up living in all kinds of different countries. Eventually, as an adult, he would serve as Secretary of State for eight years, from 1817 to 1825, under President James Monroe, where he had a variety of major achievements as Secretary of State, perhaps most importantly and most interesting to me, the Adams-Onis Treaty, which is the treaty by which the United States got Florida from Spain. And he was able to get that done without provoking full-on war by either Britain or Spain, both of whom had been pretty pissed off by Andrew Jackson's invasion of Florida in what's known as the First Seminole War, something that I covered a long time ago. This is basically the war by which the United States began the process of taking over Florida from Spain, and of course the process was concluded by Adams's treaty, the Adams-Onis Treaty. Spain obviously was pissed because their province, Florida, had been invaded by the Americans, in their view unjustifiably, and Britain was pissed because even though they had given Florida back to Spain at the end of the American Revolutionary War, 
they still maintain somewhat of a presence there informally. And in the process of invading Florida, Andrew Jackson had actually found and court-martialed and hanged two British citizens that he found in Florida. So, both Britain and Spain were very angry about the way in which Andrew Jackson, as a general, had invaded Florida and what he had done once he was in Florida. But Adams was such a slick diplomat, he was able to smooth it all over, get a deal by which the United States got Florida, and avoid having full-blown war with either Britain or Spain. After being Secretary of State for eight years, Adams would become President of the United States in a somewhat unusual and controversial election in 1824 that I won't get into here because of time. And then he would serve one term as the sixth president of the United States from 1825 to 1829, but Jackson would defeat his re-election attempt in 1828, so it was Jackson who replaced Adams after his one term. However, just a couple years later, Adams got himself elected to the United States House of Representatives, representing one of the districts in his home state of Massachusetts, and he would serve there for 17 years, from 1831 until his death in 1848. And in his years in the House of Representatives, he was most known for being a very vocal voice against slavery. By the way, he is the only United States president in American history to have been president and then subsequently served in the House of Representatives. He was definitely one of the most intelligent and educated in the fullest sense of the word political leaders in American history. Just to give you an example, he spoke eight languages. Latin, Greek, French, German, Spanish, Italian, Dutch, and Russian. I don't think any Secretary of State or President in American history comes even close to that. And according to Dean Simonton, who is a professor of psychology at the University of California, Davis, and an expert in intelligence and creativity, and who published a paper back in 2006 ranking all of the presidents in various psychological traits, including intelligence, according to him, John Quincy Adams may very well have been the highest IQ president ever. Simonton estimated John Quincy Adams' IQ at 165. Which, if you don't have a sense of that, 100, of course, is considered average. And I believe, at least last I checked, that in most or all of the United States anyway, in order to get into a gifted program, if you're going to a school that has such a thing, I believe the minimum IQ is typically 130. So if Simonton's in the ballpark and correct about his estimation of John Quincy Adams' IQ, Adams was very gifted. So, one of the things that happened during Adams' tenure as Secretary of State, aside from the whole Florida thing, was that it was during that time period that some of the countries, or up till then provinces, of Latin America began to try to break away from Spain, and a few of them started to be successful. So, first was Mexico, and if memory serves, I believe they got their independence around 1819 or 1820, and then roughly around the same time as them, I think Argentina was the next one to make a play for it and eventually get their independence. And then one by one over the next however many decades, uh, most of the Latin American, you know, Spanish colonies in the New World got their independence. 
So this was just starting during the period when Adams was Secretary of State, and there were some American voices, you know, by American I mean in the United States, saying that the U.S. should basically be like the Johnny Appleseed of democratic revolutions, and should be, you know, trying to support and maybe even sponsor and foment uprisings in Latin America against European imperial powers, mostly Spain. However, Adams and President Monroe, in whose administration he was serving, they did not share that view. They thought this was a dangerous thing that would threaten to drag the United States into other countries' wars and revolutions and problems and civil wars and all that. In other words, they were hearkening back to a lot of the advice from people like George Washington, that the United States should try as much as possible to stay out of the rest of the world's conflicts. That the United States should only concern itself with things that genuinely were of direct relevance to the United States itself. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. So on July 4th, 1821, Secretary of State John Quincy Adams spoke to the House of Representatives on this question of what's the proper role of the United States in regard to not just Latin America, but the rest of the world. So here's what he said. And now, friends and countrymen, if the wise and learned philosophers of the elder world, the first observers of mutation and aberration, the discoverers of maddening ether and invisible planets, the inventors of Congrave rockets and shrapnel shells, should find their hearts disposed to inquire what has America done for the benefit of mankind. Let our answer be this. America, with the same voice which spoke herself into existence as a nation, proclaimed to mankind the inextinguishable rights of human nature and the only lawful foundations of government. America, in the Assembly of Nations, since her admission among them, has invariably, though often fruitlessly, held forth to them the hand of honest friendship, of equal freedom, of generous reciprocity. She has uniformly spoken among them, though often to heedless and often to disdainful ears, the language of equal liberty, of equal justice, and of equal rights. She has, in the lapse of nearly a century, without a single exception, respected the independence of other nations while asserting and maintaining her own. She has abstained from interference in the concerns of others, even when conflict has been for principles to which she clings, as to the last vital drop that visits the heart. She has seen that probably for centuries to come, all the contests of the European world will be contests of inveterate power and emerging right. Wherever the standard of freedom and independence has been or shall be unfurled, there will be her heart, her benediction, and her prayers. But she goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy. She is the well-wisher to the freedom and independence of all. She is the champion and vindicator only of her own. She will commend the general cause 
by the countenance of her voice and the benignant sympathy of her example. She well knows that by once enlisting under other banners than her own, were they even the banners of foreign independence, she would involve herself beyond the power of extrication in all the wars of interest and intrigue, of individual avarice, envy, and ambition, which assume the colors and usurp the standard of freedom. The fundamental maxims of her policy would insensibly change from liberty to force. She might become the dictatress of the world. She would be no longer the ruler of her own spirit. America's glory is not dominion, but liberty. Her march is the march of the mind. She has a spear and a shield, but the motto upon her shield is freedom, independence, peace. This has been her declaration. This has been, as far as her necessary intercourse with the rest of mankind would permit, her practice. End quote from Adams, and I just want to go back and reread. You know, the famous statement of she goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy, she is the well-wisher to the freedom and independence of all, but she is the champion and vindicator only of her own. That's probably the most famous and often quoted part of this speech, and it's great, and it's eloquent, and it expresses sentiments with which I have a lot of sympathy. But I want to reiterate a part of the speech that I think is equally important, if not more so. When he says that America, quote, well knows that by enlisting under other banners than her own, were they even the banners of foreign independence, she would involve herself beyond the power of extrication in all the wars of interest and intrigue, of individual avarice, envy, and ambition, which assume the colors and usurp the standards of freedom. End quote. How relevant is that to recent American history and to current events? If she enlists under other banners than her own, she'll involve herself beyond the power of extrication in all the wars of interest and intrigue of individual avarice, envy, and ambition, which assume the colors and usurp the standard of freedom. And then he goes on to say, the fundamental maxims of her policy would insensibly change from liberty to force. Well, gee whiz, has that happened? And then he says, she might become the dictatress of the world, she would no longer be the ruler of her own spirit. Again, how relevant is that? Well, a couple of years later, in December of 1823, President Monroe sent his annual message to Congress, what we now call the State of the Union, which Monroe did, like all presidents in between the first John Adams and Woodrow Wilson, Monroe did this as not an in-person speech. Every president in between the first John Adams and Woodrow Wilson didn't do their State of the Unions or annual messages to Congress, as they were called originally. They didn't give these as in-person speeches like we think of today, but instead they would send a written message that would then be read on the floor of the House. And Monroe's, near the end of 1823, was focused on foreign policy, and again, it was the question of, what's the relationship of the United States to the rest of the world? In particular, what should be the relationship between the United States and Europe, and what stance should the United States take on the various European colonies in the Western Hemisphere, some of which were rising up for their independence, and at least a few of whom were starting to win it. 
And it was this document which laid out the famous Monroe Doctrine, which, while not exactly as good as a Swiss or Ron Paulian policy of full-blown neutrality, was certainly way closer to that than to any American administration's foreign policy since at least World War II. And by the way, Secretary of State John Quincy Adams was the primary author of that message to Congress. Although, of course, President Monroe agreed with it and signed off on it, but it's basically written by John Quincy Adams. The overall gist of the Monroe Doctrine is, number one, the United States will not allow any new European colonization in the Western Hemisphere. Number two, the United States would see such new European colonization efforts in the Western Hemisphere as a threat and would respond accordingly, but the Monroe Doctrine also said that the United States would not interfere with any existing European colonies in the New World and would also not interfere with Europe itself. So basically the idea was, you know, if, I don't know, Argentina got its independence from Spain, but then Britain or France or whoever tried to take over Argentina, the U.S. would respond, presumably with war or at least threats of war. However, the places that already were under Spanish dominion and had been in most cases for centuries, the U.S. was saying, we're not going to try and intervene in those things and stir up revolution or whatever. And in fact, even if there was some sort of rebellion, the United States is going to be neutral in regard to that, is going to continue to recognize the established government as the government of that territory up and until such point at which the established government, again, usually Spain in this situation, recognizes the independence of that place. So in other words, let's say there's an independence war going on in Chile. Under the Monroe Doctrine, the U.S. stays out of it, doesn't get involved at all. Not even in the symbolic sense of preemptively recognizing the rebel government. And the United States will not recognize that rebel government as the government of Chile until after the Spanish have already done so. And again, another part was basically a promise to not go to war outside the Western Hemisphere and specifically to not interfere in European politics. So this is a far more limited and far more defensive foreign policy than the United States has had for about 130 years now. And the Monroe Doctrine became, with some noteworthy deviations here and there to be sure, but for the most part it became the centerpiece of American foreign policy for over 90 years. It wouldn't be abandoned until the McKinley administration, when in the face of public pressure, whipped up by the yellow press, and covert manipulation by kind of proto-neocon large policy guys led by men like Henry Cabot Lodge and Teddy Roosevelt, that the McKinley administration would launch a war against Spain, which included not just invading Cuba, which then was still nominally part of the Spanish Empire, but also invading the Philippines, which not only was that still nominally Spanish as well, but was of course well outside the Western Hemisphere. And the rest, as they say, is history. And gradually, the United States more and more just explicitly says 
that it's the God-given, destiny-given mission of the United States to basically make the rest of the world into free democratic countries and all this sort of stuff. Which is kind of weird, considering what the Constitution's preamble actually says. Now, the Constitution's preamble is supposed to be sort of like the mission statement for the new government being established by that document. Now, I've read my Lysander Spooner, I've read my Anti-Federalists, you know, I'm not someone who worships the Constitution as a perfect sacred thing. Nonetheless, I think one of the uses of it is to have an objective thing that you can point to, to say when the government is clearly breaking what are supposed to be its own rules. At least you have something that's written down. So anyway, the Constitution's preamble says, We the people of the United States... In order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. Now, the key phrase here for our purposes is secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. What does that mean, ourselves and our posterity? It means the generation of guys who wrote and ratified the Constitution, that's ourselves, and our posterity. What does that mean? Future generations of Americans. In other words, the founding fathers and founding sons like John Quincy Adams, for all of their faults, they had a very kind of old-school European conservative sense that the world is imperfect and imperfectible. And that any desire to try and create utopia was probably going to end in disaster. And that any attempt to try and make the world into your own preferred image was probably going to not only fail, but make things worse. They had a tragic sense of history and they had a sense of realism, a sense that there were limits to what you could do and that if you got way too hubristic, you were likely to create disaster, even if the ideals that you were supposedly pursuing sounded great on paper. So in contrast to the speech by John Quincy Adams, to take just a few of the many examples of U.S. presidents since the Lodge, Roosevelt, proto-neocon, large policy clique diverted the U.S. from its original quote-unquote foreign policy consensus, Well, Woodrow Wilson in 1917, getting the U.S. into World War I, said, quote, The world must be made safe for democracy. End quote. Or how about from three decades later? Quote, I believe that it must be the policy of the United States to support free peoples who are resisting attempted subjugation by armed minorities or by outside pressures. The free peoples of the world look to us for support in maintaining their freedoms. If we falter in our leadership, we may endanger the peace of the world. And we shall surely endanger the welfare of this nation. End quote. And of course, that was Harry Truman in 1947 really kicking off the Cold War. How about this one? Our frontiers today are on every continent. That's, of course, John F. Kennedy in 1960. Or how about this one? 
we will rid the world of evildoers. And that's, of course, George W. Bush in 2001. Now, if you think about it, this whole idea of, like, making the entire world free and democratic, or ridding the world of evil, look up the word hubris, if you're not familiar with it. It's a word that comes to us from the ancient Greeks. It was the defining element of Greek tragedy. Hubris, to the Greeks, literally meant when you started to believe that you were a god. And in most, perhaps all, I've not read a ton of them, but as far as I know, in most, if not all, Greek tragedies, hubris was ultimately what caused it to be a tragedy. Somebody would get way too arrogant, and ultimately, horrible things would happen to them and maybe to others as well. I don't think these insane, hubristic, arrogant, self-appointed missions, like making the world free or ridding the world of evil, these are not doable. These are not achievable in real life. Furthermore, in trying to pursue such a ridiculously unobtainable utopian goal, as many American leaders, like John Quincy Adams or James Madison, to name just a couple, knew, in the pursuit of such a ridiculous, unattainable goal, Americans were likely to lose their liberty and prosperity in the process, to say nothing of the damage they would do to the rest of the world from this insane hubris. Now, I'm going to share with you a few excerpts of one more speech, and this is going to be a speech from Lyndon Johnson in 1967 on the Vietnam War and why the U.S. was involved in it. Quote, Why should three presidents and the elected representatives of our people have chosen to defend this Asian nation more than 10,000 miles from American shores? We cherish freedom, yes, We cherish self-determination for all people. Yes. We abhor the political murder of any state by another, and the bodily murder of any people by gangsters of whatever ideology. And for 27 years, since the days of Lend-Lease, we have sought to strengthen free people against domination by aggressive foreign powers. But the key to all that we have done is really our own security. What would the consequences of letting armed aggression against South Vietnam succeed? What would follow in the time ahead? What kind of world are they prepared to live in five months or five years from tonight? For those who have borne the responsibility for decision during the past many years, the stakes to us have been clear and have seemed high. As President of the United States, I am not prepared to risk the security, indeed the survival, of this American nation on mere hope and wishful thinking. I am convinced that by seeing this struggle through now, we are greatly reducing the chances of a much larger war, perhaps a nuclear war. I would rather stand in Vietnam in our time, and by meeting this danger now and facing up to it, thereby reduce the danger for our children and for our grandchildren. The true peacekeepers in the world tonight are not those who urge us to retire from the field in Vietnam, who tell us to try to find the quickest, cheapest exit from that tormented land, no matter what the consequences to us may be. The true peacekeepers are those men who stand out there on the DMZ at this very hour, taking the worst that the enemy can give. The true peacekeepers are the soldiers who are breaking the terrorist grip around the villages of Vietnam 
the civilians who are bringing medical care and food and education to people who have already suffered a generation of war. These gallant men have our prayers, have our thanks, have our heartfelt praise, and our deepest gratitude. Let the world know that the keepers of peace will endure through every trial, and that, with the full backing of their countrymen, they are going to prevail. End quote. Now, he literally said that the war in Vietnam was vital to the security and even the survival of the United States. Does anybody other than perhaps some of the most deranged loony neocons today think that's anything other than absurd? I can prove that the war in Vietnam had zero bearing on the security or survival of the United States. The proof is, when the United States left and the sock puppet regime in South Vietnam fell, it didn't do anything to the American people or the American homeland. Nobody, other than, again, the most fringe, loony warmonger neocons, looks back at the Vietnam War and thinks it was anything other than a tragic, disastrous mistake. And yet, the rhetoric and justifications for that war are eerily similar to the rhetoric and justifications for the war in Afghanistan, or now for the U.S. being involved, even indirectly as a proxy, in Ukraine. The Pentagon Papers, of course, eventually revealed that the highest levels in the White House and the Pentagon knew the Vietnam War was basically unwinnable from pretty early on. But they kept dragging it out for a variety of reasons, resulting in tens of thousands of totally unnecessary American deaths, hundreds of thousands more Americans wounded, maimed, and psychologically destroyed for the rest of their life. As well as, and I know as an American you're not supposed to think or care about them, but it did result in the deaths of, you know, a couple million Vietnamese. All for what? For nothing. So that the South Vietnamese regime could collapse like a house of cards as soon as Team America left, and the North took it over, and it also did nothing in terms of hurting the American people or threatening the American homeland. In fact, it weakened and divided American society at home, damaged the American economy, and resulted in huge chunks of Vietnam being blanketed with things like napalm, white phosphorus, and Agent Orange. And the only people who really won were companies that made the helicopters and the Agent Orange and the guns and all that shit. More recently, the Afghanistan papers exposed a few years ago very similar things about that war. So if you actually understand how this works, if you actually understand that basically American presidents since Woodrow Wilson have been saying the exact same things to justify all of their wars, how could any informed, intelligent person really trust the current administration and its media accomplices' statements about why the U.S. needs to be involved in Ukraine, why that war happened, or how it's going. Why would you believe any of it? They have over a century track record of consistently lying about every war. Do you really believe them? Or do you think it's possible that John Quincy Adams, possibly the most effective Secretary of State in U.S. history, and possibly the highest IQ president in U.S. history, might have been on to something when 201 years ago he warned the nation against 
going abroad in search of monsters to destroy. Against enlisting under other banners than her own. Warned that we would involve ourselves beyond the power of extrication. That we would involve ourselves in all the wars of interest and intrigue of individual avarice, envy, and ambition, which assume the colors and usurp the standard of freedom. Warned us that the United States, if it went abroad in search of monsters to destroy, would change from liberty to force. Warned us that while America might become the dictatress of the world, she would no longer be the ruler of her own spirit. Maybe John Quincy Adams was, for all of his many faults and imperfections, still far, far superior in intellect, wisdom, and genuine patriotism to every single individual, top to bottom, that's in the current regime of the U.S. Happy Independence Day. bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.